0: Morning slash afternoon slash evening. Welcome to the Cowards and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China-African podcast. I am your host, Winslow Robertson, and I am joined by our co hosts Lena Ben-Abdallah, a PhD student in international relations at the University of Florida, and I-Ting Wong, our resident China sustainability specialist. Um, Ladies, how are you doing?
1: Doing well, Winslow. A little bit under the weather, but doing well. Thank you.
0: Same here. Thank you. Okay. Both under the weather, so um, they might not be quite as, uh, as talkative or loquacious, but we still appreciate you making the effort. Um, today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of, the, of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment and development field in Africa that I know of. The Sikomine deal is one of China's largest minerals for infrastructure deals in Africa as well as as well as one of its least understood. China's export import bank or Exim Bank extended 6 billion dollars worth of credit to a Chinese consortium called Sikomines that would have mineral rights to Katanga province in the Democratic Republic of Congo. However, the deal was initially worth a reported $9 billion and required a renegotiation as the International Monetary Fund argued that a Congolese debt reduction plan could not include sycamine due to the structure of the loans. Dr. Johanna Malm just earned um, her PhD from Roskilde University and joins us again on carries and rice to discuss sycamine, except that her dissertation argues that the IMF portrayed the $3 billion infrastructure loan within this particular agreement as a cheaper concessional loan, whilst in fact it was a significantly more expensive commercial loan. This was to ensure that the DRC could continue the debt relief process that was blocked by Sycamine. She says, and I quote, For political reasons, the IMF also needed to downplay the challenge posed by the Chinese loan to the organization's debt limits framework. Dr. Wall, Uh, Dr. Malm, welcome back to the pod, and congratulations.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Could you give us an overview of your dissertation? What questions were you trying to answer, and what research methods did you use? What were the methodological and theoretical theoretical difficulties that you faced? And finally, what part of my introduction was wrong or misinformed?
2: (sighs) I think, Winslow, that your introduction was excellent. Um, I think, you know, you're getting it pretty much right. Um, The question I was trying to answer was, to what extent, how and why do Chinese commercial development finance offer, so Chinese loans, impact on the IMF's power in African countries? And I've explored specifically the IMF's power to set norms in terms of public debt management. So that's the specific question um I I've explored um in the dissertation but well, the broader kind of the broader issue that I wanted to explore was like so everyone's asking themselves is China now challenging the west as it were in Africa but that's a that question is so broad it's impossible to answer so one has to be specific, on, you know, to research it. And uh so I decided to focus on on uh, on the IMF because it's a very powerful institution in, in many African countries um, it acts as a gatekeeper um, for not all aid but some aid especially budget support from certain actors and it is an institution that donors and embass- you know embassies and um, development actors just generally listen to the IMF they have an expert position so they have power also in terms of that and so that's that's the one uh, element I decided to focus on, and then uh, to, to and then I especially decided to look at public debt management because that's an issue where the IMF has been very influential for many decades in Africa. To you know to well um, tell or or support, depending on you know the perspective that you use, African countries how to structure and pay back their loans. External debt. So I chose to focus on that, and then I had to, you know, find a part of the Chinese presence in Africa, a facet that actually challenges the IMF's power to set norms in terms of public debt management, and that is the Chinese commercial uh, development finance offers, so Chinese commercial loans. So that's why that's how it kind of I, I zoomed down to focus on that specific issue. Then, um, well, in terms of theoretical and methodological challenges, I think I am an empirically driven scholar. I was interested in finding out what's going on, you know, what's going on with Sikumin and what's going on around the IMF and what is, what's everyone doing in the field. So I've spent time in the field and in Congo and spoken to people and really tried to uncover, you know, what's going on around this. So for me, um, the challenge in the process as a scholar has been, of course, to make sense of it all so theoretically. I ended up using um, a Coxian approach, uh, which makes most sense.
0: For um, our listeners' knowledge, could you tell us what a Coxian approach is?
2: You Coxian mentioned that in
0: your introduction, I believe.
2: Right. Um, Robert Cox is a, a neo-Marxist scholar who has been doing work on, well, many things, but on uh, neoliberalism and world order. So he basically has an approach to international organizations. Uh, He takes an approach which um, acknowledges the role of ideas but which argues that um, international institutions and, and organizations their power is rooted in the power of the most influential shareholders, basically, and on the board of the organization. But I think it's interesting because I'm also thrilled, I mean, I'm also interested in, in con- constructivist research on international organizations where the central argument is that these organizations have power because they have a social construction power, because they have epistemic authority to formulate norms and to spread knowledge. And I think that's also it makes a lot of sense to me as well. So, so using a Coxian approach allowed me to actually draw on both um, in the dissertation, even though I, I really see what I see in my material is that the IMF, in this case, was powerful because it was backed by the U.S. and France and the most influential, you know, these powerful actors. That's so in terms of theory, that's what I ended up doing. And uh, methodologically, I think, I mean, it's straightforward qualitative research, a lot of interviews, a lot of observation, reading contracts, spending a lot of time reading other scholars' work, um, and, you know, digging into detail with this. Um, and the challenge has been, of course, to, to get access. And then when you get access, to handle the information that you get in a, an ethically correct way. So I think the DRC is a challenging environment, but it was also challenging for me because not a lot of scholars go there. So I did end up discovering things that, where there was a controversy around one of my, a piece that where I had discovered that China Exim Bank actually had pulled out out of the agreement at one point. Um, And that's something that's, of course, because this is a very important um, deal. The Sikomi is very important to the Congolese president and he's been very, I mean, criticized under fire for many years. So this was then seen as um, by the Congress opposition as a proof that that the president couldn't even manage China, kind of thing. And that was that was a methodological and I think personal challenge for me because I never thought of this as and I, I I didn't intend to enter into a political game, you know. But that's kind of what ended up happening at some point, and and that was a challenge for me. But you know, I got through it, and now I've really learned a lot, which is, I think, the whole point of doing a PhD. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, it's a very useful um, overview, Um, and I wonder if you could um, explain more on um, just, you know, what kind of um, normative frameworks that IMF represents. Um, in terms of public debt fin- uh, financing and management, um, and what it is about the Chinese practice um, that is potentially um, challenging this?
2: Yeah, I, um, I mean, as a norm, I was using Finemore and Sicking's definition as an appropriate standard of behavior for, for a specific actor in a specific context. And um the norm that the IMF uses in terms of public debt management and the, or the the requirements. Is it's I mean as say if a norm is a theoretical term then in, in the empirical manifestation of that is the debt limits framework that the IMF uses. And I wanna try to avoid being overly technical. Um when I discuss this with you and That's and...
1: always appreciated.
2: <laughs> but the the basic point of the IMF argues is that loans to low-income countries should not be too expensive. They should be concessional loans. That is, loans that qualify as development aid because they have low interest rates, low grace period, which means the period before you have to start paying back, and long total reimbursement periods. So they are not expensive for the country that takes up this loan. Um, And they have... They calculate the concessionality rate in terms of what they call the grant element. So a grant, if it's a hundred percent grant, then it's a full donation, and if it has a zero percent grant element, then it's a fully commercial loan. Um, and so they have a way of calculating this, where putting the uh, the concessionality rate as thirty five percent, then it, it qualifies as concessional that's cheap enough for the IMF, you know, <laughs> to approve of it. No, but like that's in plain terms, that's what it is. And Chinese loans, and but that, this is a normative perspective, you know, from the IMF. This is an approach that's seen as like, this is good for low income countries. Um, In China, and we all know, I have to start by saying that Chinese foreign policy process is fragmented, as anyone familiar with that literature will know. Um, I argue in the dissertation that the Chinese The China central bank representatives that represent China in the IMF and at the executive director's office in the IMF, they don't have an intention to challenge the IMF's approach to public debt management for low-income countries. But in China's financial institutions, the banks, so that we have such as China Exim Bank and China Development Bank, within those circles, there's a different approach to debt management, to the relation between debt and development which which says that you can give large commercial loans to low-income countries if they are linked to uh, income-generating projects that will secure reimbursement. And this is a different approach that doesn't um, – well, often it involves a sovereign guarantee, so it has a link to the borrowing state's uh, budget. But the primary idea is to have – for it to finance a profitable you know, um, commercial project that will then pay back the loan. And this is an approach, and Professor Deborah Breutigam, of course, has spoken about this at length for several years. This is an approach that Japan used in China. So to to, um, finance Chinese development, giving loans backed by um, exports of raw materials, which then helped China build its economy. So this is an approach, it's your kind of ADAS autobiography approach, which it's just like you practice what you, you know, what worked for you. So this is something that worked in China, this approach between, this approach to the relation between debt and development. So I argue in the dissertation that there's a clear Chinese norm in this regard. And the Chinese, the large commercial loans that have been extended to African countries actually embody this normative approach. But it's not something that China, as a concerted kind of China Inc, is is uh, putting forward. But it's just something that comes through from these financial institutions, and then, of course, then via the um, the SOEs, that's Chinese state-owned companies that implement the loans in African countries. So these are the two different normative approaches that I argue and meet um, and met uh, in a controversy, I think, for the most. The, 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 the earliest occasion where it was, became a really big controversy was in Congo, in the case that I study in the DRC.
1: Um, and so, how has um, China's offer out of a resource-backed um, loan um, then affected IMF's rhetorics or even sort of policies towards the DRC? that you have observed?
2: Yeah, what I have, well, there are several layers to it because I argue that there was, in the controversy, that, you know, on the SICOMIN argument, uh, the SICOMIN agreement, um, there was first an instance of, of um, overt discipline and then another instance of silent compromise. And that this, story of, of a discipline the imf disciplining the drc to renegotiate the agreement that's been very well reported so that's has been the story to date that uh that the imf simply forced congo to renegotiate the chinese loan so that would so that it would re, uh, so that it would fit into the debt relief process um so that congo could get debt relief uh, and that this means that the the loan had then been Renegotiated so as to fit the IMF's, uh, debt limits framework. Um, so that's what I called over discipline. And that's the most, you know, that's been the, um, the common wisdom around this to date. What I argue in the dissertation, which is a new, and this is something that actually Deborah Breitigan brought up, where she observed this. And then I took her analysis further in the dissertation is to say that, Hey, if you actually count, or if you i like, calculate um the cost for the loan even after the renegotiation this is far from concessional this is because the imf argued that this has a that after the renegotiation uh, the loan had a concessionality um concessionality a grant element of 42 or 46 percent, and that's that will be deeply concessional, very cheap for the for the DRC. Whereas actually, I look at it, I say, well, hey, this has a concession. The grant element of around 15 percent. I mean, I'm not putting forward, I'm not arguing that this is the figure. I'm just saying that the IMF has made a very kind calculation on this loan. This is a much more expensive loan for the DRC than the, than the IMF suggests. And I argue that I think the IMF did this because they wanted to help Congo get debt relief. Um because this was clearly, you know, blocking the DIC's debt relief. And everyone knows that Congo needed the finances that this would bring in. So in that sense, it was a way to, to help Congo get both debt relief and the Chinese agreement. But I think it also shows because no no of the other donors or I haven't heard anyone of the of the creditors or the donors or anyone actually scrutinized in the terms of this deal. So everyone trusted the IMF and said, well, that's fine. But that, what I argue is that actually shows that the, the bilateral creditors and, and the donor community was more interested in the debt sustainability process as such. So as to bring that through to like safeguard our policy initiative rather than the DRC's actual debt sustainability because if, if they would have had that, if that was their main concern, they, they would have looked at this loan to say, you know, is this really sustainable now? And if they would have done so, they could have said, oh, no, this is still a very commercial, a deeply commercial loan. So it says something about the po- politics around this, that this was debt relief process had become so politically important, that, and this is part of the whole liberal peace building uh, process that was underway in the DRC which you know where debt relief was a central part which means that if we're going to implement peace the way we have decided that we're going to implement peace in Congo um, to stabilize the state etc then we need debt relief and we can't have obstacles to that so then this became the solution Um, so that's one you know that's a silent compromise and implications in terms of the DRC in terms of the IMF, um, this shows that they're very, they're in, ingenuous, you know, they're very smart at finding solutions to challenge the challenges that emerge, because they have, uh, in Angola also, Lucy Corkin has showed this in her book about Angola, um, or she points that out, you know, that the IMF also agreed to, in their wording, the way they word, um the lending uh they're well the different documents that come with loan uh, with uh, with the programs it's to say that you know there's uh, the the Angola should stick to certain levels of concession of certain grant elements levels of concessionality but if there's a need for upscaled infrastructure financing then you know more commercial loans are allowed and this kind of formulation is a way i argue and this is what I think Lucy suggests as well is that this is a way for the i m f to keep a seat at the table, even if there's a big chinese loan which i m f can't ask the country to say no to, and it challenges the i m f s framework but if they have in you know if they have um, included a clause that says well, upon review a larger concessional or larger commercial loans can be allowed then the i m f s framework isn't challenged it's just you know, it, the Chinese loans can fit in there. And then at, at the times when there's no Chinese loan, then the IMF's framework or normative preferences can apply as they did before. And this is what also happened um, in 2009, just after the same compromise in Angola and the settlement in Congo around Sikomin, then the IMF actually revised um, the debt limits framework too. In exactly this way, formally, to say that if there's a need for upscaled infrastructure financing, then we can allow for, we can consider increased commercial lending. So, this is a way, I mean, to go back to the question that I asked, to say, you know, does China challenge the West's power? Well, going, if we go down to the specifics of this case and the research question that I've asked, this is a way in which Chinese normative preferences actually impacted on the way that IMF formulates very normative preferences but an add to that I also think there's and, and Deborah Breutigam has also suggested this in some of her blog posts blog posts around this is that it's possible also that actually the IMF itself and the officials that work there have been inspired by the challenge by the Chinese approach and the thinking around you know commercial loans and the relation between debt and development so maybe even the IMF's own thinking has evolved in this regard so it is an aspect of normative change probably i mean it could be also only that it challenges the imf so that they have to amend uh, their framework but it can also be an aspect of normative change but that's i don't go too much into that in the yes. dissertation because it's kind of lies outside of the empirical focus but that's yeah that's basically my take on it
1: yeah my one last Follow-up question. Sorry to occupy the mic. Um, is so, if under, if I understand it correctly, the, the advantage of insisting on debt relief um, program is um, is allowing IMF to have the ability to sort of control um, or have influence on Congo's development policies, right? So that they, they can have more prescriptive policies to ensure that they continue to get debt relief versus the commercial loan approach where there's not much sort of so-called so so in, interference that China can exert on the government's policy and development policy and priorities? That-
2: no, no, no. Actually, it's good that you asked that question because I'm not at all – I mean, these are different – like I don't, I want to, I don't want to take it down to non-interference or interference because this is just about different approaches to lending. So, I mean, the IMF, I, I think, in this case, wasn't about getting deeper influence, and/or in terms of on a general level, this was about safeguarding a the debt relief process in the DRC and B the own uh, normative, the the you know the ability to. To you, to apply the own normative approach to, to debt relief. So I don't want to, or to debt management, sorry. So I think I don't want to pose the question in that way or answer in terms of non-interference versus interference because I don't, I haven't thought of it that way. So I think it's more, I think you certainly could take that line of thought further but i don't think the line between internal and external is so clear i think i always struggle with this interference non-interference thing because i think so- sovereignty for me is a social construction anyway so that's i haven't thought of it in that that you know in those terms no i'm good uh
0: dr mall can you talk a little bit about some of the misperceptions behind sicko means? Um, and one of the things that really um, floored me in terms of your research was that you said sicko means isn't actually a loan; it's a line of credit without uh, w- with a more uncertain amount. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and talk about how it was framed, at least in terms of uh, the media in the United States.
2: Yeah, I think there's a basic difference between this kind of credit facility that Sigumin brought in and the other Chinese commercial loans. Or Chinese commercial. That's why I have used this kind of length in the dissertation. I call it Chinese commercial development finance offers instead of just saying Chinese commercial loans, because the credit line is like we. It's a pledge. It says, you know, we're willing to lend you three billion dollars. That doesn't mean we're going to throw $3 billion on you immediately. It means if you fulfill certain conditions that we have specified in a very lengthy agreement, you know, which stipulates the way this agreement should move forward, then we can disperse entrenches within this. And that becomes individual loans. So that's the Chinese, that, that's at least these big loans. That is these big credit lines, whereas, you know, a loan from the African Development Bank or the World Bank, or for that matter, a Chinese concessional loan within the Chinese aid program, they're dispersed the full amount up front. But with Sikumin, that was never the case. Um, and if you read the, the, the agreement from 2008, this is very clear in the formulation says that, You know, um, if the mine is profitable, we will pay for infrastructure investments um, uh, to the degree that the mine is profitable. It just really doesn't have any amounts. There are certain amounts mentioned in the first memorandum of understanding. But the whole point, I think, why the IMF reacted to this was that it didn't set and actually any limits to the kind of loans that the DRC could take up, and it didn't set any limits to. Uh, it didn't specify. Uh, it didn't specify the interest rate because it said it would follow the LIBOR, and there were a lot of things that were floating in the agreement. So I think the reporting around this, and I know that the IMF and the Congolese government represented it as, you know, we have a three billion loan for mining, we have a three billion loan for infrastructure, and, and the possibility of a second. Uh, second round of infrastructure of three bil- 3 billion and i understand that because you have to make it intelligible like you have to make people understand but there was no contractual traction for those amounts and i think the chinese respondents that i've spoken to and the chinese ambassador said this already in 2008 when i spoke to him in kinshasa he said i don't understand you know where these amounts come from because for us they're not set in stone there's um, it really depends on how the project progresses. So I think that's just an, a difference in terms of it, – it, it, it might seem like quibbling you know, on my side, but the implication is that most people, when I came to Kinshasa in 2012 to do my final bit of research, everyone just assumed that this money was now paid out. Uh, Congo had a 3 billion loan from China for for infrastructure. And that was it. Whereas actually what I showed and what emerged during my research. And then that's where also became a bit controversial when I published that, you know, we had a billion in loans that included everything around the mine and the infrastructure projects, simply because China Exxon Bank also was hesitant to um, disperse and they had also pulled out. So, so it's just, There's a different way of doing debt, and that's what I try to argue um, that also the concerns around debt sustainability. I think it's important to be very concerned um, about African countries or developing countries' debt, but I think they have been a bit overblown in the sense that um, Chinese bankers do not pay out money that they're not absolutely certain of getting back. You know, because so that's why China Exim Bank pulled out at some point. That's why Sikumin, the advances have been so slow because they were not sure that the mine, there were challenges. Um, and I haven't been able to, you know, dig into all the details about the challenges because, of course, it's difficult to get access to all of the information, even though I managed to secure access to some of, you know, some of the details, but also because the bank was just not sure that this was worth the risk that, that they would get their money back and the Chinese Concessional loans, even in the aid program, they're also like linked to revenue-generating projects, to uh, to electricity incomes from the mining companies, for example. I mean, Chinese bank. I mean, China Exim Bank is very cautious in terms of getting their money back. So I think just to bring it back to the question you asked, the misrepresentation of, of what it is, what kind of a loan this is, it has implications of what we understand how we understand the implications of chinese loans for african debt sustainability if we misunderstand what the loans are and how much has actually been dispersed then we are not likely to understand what the implications are either
0: that's a a really a really uh, inc- incredibly important point point. and um it, to to sum up uh f- because my mind is not dexterous enough to to totally Come up to, to absorb what you've just said. the The essence of the cikolim deal is, if the mining is profitable, a loan will materialize. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's not for a particular amount. It just it has to be profitable.
2: Well, now now now, when the agreement was renegotiated, and thank you for the follow up question. This is good to specify. Then it was capped like when in October 2009, when this was uh, when the the agreement was renegotiated, the the loan amounts were actually capped. So now there there can't be more lending, than three billion for infrastructure. Um, And that's the only loan that's covered by the Sovereign Guarantee. So now actually there is. But it doesn't say it still doesn't say three billion will be dispersed. No, it says maximum three billion. There's nothing saying that three billion will be dispersed, and I'm, and I mean, I'm not even sure to this date that it will be. Uh, I don't know where it stands now because I haven't been doing field work. You know, I've heard that it, you know, we have seen the news that it's, um, that it's moving forward, and from what I understand, uh, the infrastructure projects are as well. But three billion is a lot of money for infrastructure, so you know, it remains to be seen.
0: Fantastic, and. Dr. Wallet was so incredibly useful for, for me, if not our listeners. Uh, I'm going to shift gears and ask something a little more personal. It, and I'm unsure if I can even ask this, but how do you feel about the IMF and Exim Bank after this research? Are, are you even allowed to have feelings? And do you see a rivalry between Bretton Woods institutions and Chinese development banks or Chinese development finance? i um i am wondering
2: if you could you could yeah uh well i think um my feeling as such um i mean ontologically basic you a know, very basic ontological level, i don't think my feelings you know my sense of what the i m f is hasn't changed a lot of course it's a it's a heterogeneous institution, so you're bound to find you know all sorts of things. Materializing in there, like it's not a monolith, just like China is not a monolith. Um, the IMF morphs, it changes. Um, so it's not like there's one IMF with one will. It's like, okay, so in Africa, this particular thing happened. Um, and I think there's, you know, people trying to do good in, in, um, in the IMF or people trying to do their work and, it's, yeah, I don't think it's, it's changed anything in the way I think about it. It's, it's just interesting to see how, I mean, to be able to pin down, that's what I find most exciting about my research, is to be able to pin down how it can be political and how it can do things because it's politically necessary to do so. Because people always say, you know, everything that the IMF and the World Bank do is political. Whereas it's, it's not always easy to pin down how. And I show in one specific case how they did that. And I think that's interesting. And I I think the IMF has an important role to play in many ways in in Congo. And it's been pushing the government to publish contracts in the mining sector. And, you know, and it did get the DRC through the debt relief process, which, you know, is, is, is good for Congo. So... I don't know. I don't have a lot of feelings. I'm just very interested in how these things work, and I I have the privilege of actually um, getting some more insight in terms of this. And similarly, you know, China Exim Bank is more straightforward because they have commercial imperatives, and and they're open with that, and that's what they do. So no many surprises there. Um, I think China Exim Bank is also learning. I mean, I think the fact that it pulled out of the of As a finance ever see in and then came back, um, shows something about how they have to learn in Africa, the risks that they take, how they consider risks. Because as I, um, I understand that, and that's confirmed by several respondents, you know, independently is that China Exim Bank came back to the negotiation table when they already had Bank of China and China Development Bank. To negotiate to finance I mean, Then China and Bank came back. So I think they're also learning. I think they're deciding how they deal with risk in this context. In terms of a rivalry, I don't necessarily see it that way. And that's also what I argue in the dissertation is that China in Bank does have a normative, you know, there's a normative perspective on the relation between norm or between debt and development that kind of under underlines what it does or it kind of supports its work but it has commercial imperatives and the actors that actually roll out these loans and that bring them in and take the risk are Chinese companies and they are not necessarily driven by a normative agenda they want a secure business and they do it in a way that they see fit so they uh, the resource resource backed uh, or the financing arrangements that are linked to profitable uh, often uh, natural resource projects, um, they are, they have commercial intent, although that's also the experience that China had with Japan back in the day. So that's what they do. Uh, they have this commercial thing they want to do, and the IMF has another mandate, which is to stabilize African economies, monitor the exchange rate, um, monitor inflation, monitor, um, macro- macroeconomic management just generally, and also, um, of course, public debt management. And 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 they met um, in the time period that I study in the dissertation. And I show that the IMF adapted its approach slightly. And now it can accommodate the Chinese loans uh, if needs be. So it's a way in which... You know, it's a kind of mutual, somebody, one of my um committee members suggested that this is maybe a case more of mutual accommodation or bargaining. And that's also more of a seed. I I realize I've phrased it in terms of conflict in, able, in order to be able to study whether, you know, China challenged the IMF's power. I think that's a good way to to phrase it in order to to answer the question. But in reality, to answer the question, I think... It's probably a valid point that one of my committee member made that this is, this is a bargaining process and they're not necessarily in conflict. They happen to, happen to find themselves in conflict, but that's not because there was a conflictual intent, I think. It's more because they, these two frameworks clashed and there was no real intention. I think the China Exim Bank's president, President Li has been very vocally critical of the IMF's approach to debt sustainability but in the specific case of Congo you know CQB didn't intend to challenge the IMF this was a commercial commercial developmental um, initiative um, yeah
0: fantastic and I think we have enough time for one big question and unless eating you want to ask something else I'm going to ask it all right Dr. Malm, how much time and effort does it really take to understand one of these large-scale China-Africa projects? Do each require years of research? Essentially, are these sites worth PhDs unto themselves?
2: Well, I guess it depends to it depends on where you are as an individual researcher. I think, I mean, I've been so fascinated by my exchanges with Deborah Broitigam over these years that I've studied this because she understands things so much faster. She sees the pattern so much faster than it took me years to like understand. And, you know, the the, the the compromise on the side of the IMF, it was something that I only saw after I read her paper where she pointed out this out and then I started digging deeper into it. Um, that's because she read the contract and she saw these things. I read the same contract. I didn't see it. So it's a a way you develop, you know. So if you have 20 years of experience understanding these dynamics, then probably looking at a Chinese deal is going to be, um, it's going to be maybe not straightforward, but it's not going to take you, you know, a whole PhD, equivalent of a PhD research project to understand it. But if you come, as I did, You know, I came out of my master's. I started looking at this as a researcher at the Center for Chinese Studies and then doing my PhD. I was basically learning, you know, about about African development, about Chinese foreign policy, about the world, about being a researcher, about methods, about theory, about everything as I learned about this. So for me, I needed the whatever eight years, you know, of of looking at this to really feel that like I nailed it. You know, I do understand this. I, I, I'm not going to say I'm going re- to, I'm sure I'm going to receive critique for what I write, but I feel I have a solid argument and that took a long time for me, but it's because I grew up with it kind of, I became a researcher by researching this. So I think if you're a junior researcher, yes, then maybe it will take a um, a PhD, but otherwise it might be faster. Um, but that said, I think it also requires, if you come to a new a context or a deal that nobody has been researching, then it does take time because you have to generate your data, you have to talk to people and you have to come back maybe a year or two later when the information is more readily available, talk to people. I mean, it takes a lot of dust, field work, um, time away from home and these kinds of things to, to do it. Um, and for Congolese research, it's, I think, been even more difficult to access information because I think a lot some of the information that I have been able to access is also because I was a foreigner and, and at some times, I also think it helped that I was a woman. You know, these kinds of dimensions that come in and help you into personal dynamics that helped me do this research because I was also a person that was going to leave the country. So it's more difficult, I think, for Congolese to come and ask for information specifically around Sikomin because it's so closely linked to President Kabila's political
0: wow it's a, a a really a really fascinating answer and a really good way to to close out a discussion i feel uh do we're going to move on to recommendations dr. Malm, do you have any recommendations for our listeners
2: i really in terms of eating well of course Chinese food is always good you know <laughs> no but um what i hope as a person and as a scholar um that I hope that SICOMIN is going to be useful for Congo. So I really would like to encourage more scholars to study this going forward because this is going to be um, a long, long long-term project. And the infrastructure projects, uh, too, you know, they will be rolled out over probably the coming decade. So I would encourage more researchers to spend time exploring different facets of this. You know, what is the quality of the infrastructure? How do we monitor that? What is the comparative, you know, if you compare the price of this infrastructure to tenders on open tenders, what is the use for Congo? Um, In terms of the mine, you know, what are the different implications compared to other mines? So I just, and I think this doesn't just, of course, come for Sikomeen. I think Congo deserves a lot more research. Um, We all know what situation in Congo is now. We have a very challenging situation. We have a president that, you know, clearly seems to indicate that he doesn't want to step down. Um, We have a very insecure situation in the country. So the country deserves um, attention and research um, in general, and Sikomin in particular. But I also think it's important not to single it out and say, you know, this is bad because it's Chinese. I think it's a specific kind of financing arrangement, and that's been managed by, you know, by the president, by the circle around the president and kept a non-transparent for that reason. But that's, I think, not so much because it's, um, I mean, that could be by anything that's not transparent in Congo. So just look at the Chinese initiatives in Congo and in Africa and the world in comparative perspective and, and don't expect it to be particularly worse than anyone else. It's different, but that doesn't mean it has to be, has to be, um, worse, I've been critical of Human Rights word, Watch, that you know, human or yeah, you, no Global Witness. I apologize. Global Witness's report on Sikomin which was a very good report and which had important policy implications in Congo, but it did speak about China, you know, and Sikomin as something that happens in a context where everything else is fine, and which is not the case. So yeah, that's what I would like to recommend.
0: Excellent fantastic recommendation eating Lena are you guys up for a recommendation I'll take that as a no we will (laughs) all instead recommend your dissertation which I actually didn't introduce and I apologize so uh Dr. Malm wrote her dissertation which is published and the dissertation is called When Chinese Development Finance Met the IMF's Public Debt Norm in DR Congo uh and it was, I guess the publisher was the Department of Social Sciences and Business at Roskilde University.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually it's it's just my it's the dissertation itself, okay. and it's available. You can just Google it. Um, it's available at Roskilde Roskilde University Library, but you can just Google me and find my homepage at uh, Roskilde University, and I am also available. I'm I'm tweeting it so. I'm on Twitter on Dr. J Malm, so D R J M A L M. So you can just also find it there.
0: Fantastic, and that was actually my next question about how to find you, and you answered that. Um, as for ourselves, uh, Eating can be found on Twitter at dow of the Pooh. That's Dao's and Daoism of the Pooh, as in Winnie the Pooh, Pooh Bear. Uh, Lina can be found on L Abdella, and I can be found at Winslow underscore R and we all tweet on China Africa and our own niche so eating will also throw some sustainability Lina will throw some political science and I will throw some uh really weird China Africa stories that pique my interest
2: <laughs> um,
0: and uh uh, finally, I can be found on com and www.cowriesrice.com, the latter site housing my fledgling china Africa consultancy. And that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Dr. Moll for joining us from... Stockholm. S- Stockholm. Thank God. I was <laughs> I was going to say another Nordic country and probably get you very pissed off at me. Uh,
2: That's fine. I don't think any Nordic person will get pissed off because you don't know their country. We're small. It's fine. <laughs> Um we would also like to thank African Development Jobs.
0: This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, BuzzSprout, Google Play, and iTunes. We're also teaming up with WTMD Community Radio from the Chrome to Share our Podcast. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing a the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.